Welcome to this episode of Untribal Politics Podcast with Innes. My name is Guy, and I'm happy to be sponsoring this episode on behalf of Precision Spirits, a small batch Edinburgh-based distillery who are always innovating on gin, delivering on flavour, and challenging tradition. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Untribal Podcast, the show that gives you news content by regular people for regular people. Today I'm joined by the director of Edinburgh Institute, a man of many talents and passions which can be seen right throughout his career. He's a marketing maestro, an audacious author, a keen campaigner, and throughout all of this, a sensational and significant supporter of his uh, independence for his beloved Scotland, uh, David Hood, ladies and gents. How are you doing today, David? You all right? No bad at all. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> for goodness sake, if you ever give up doing this, you can always become a marketer. That, that, was, a, that was a terrific wee elevator pitch. Thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, it comes naturally in the morning. It just comes to me. I don't, I don't know what it is. But <laughs> tell us your story, David. Where are you from? You know, how did you get into any sort of political involvement? Goodness me, uh, I was going to say never ask a marketer for a story because you'll regret it, it'll be far too long. Uh, <laughs> That's fine, this is what we're podcasting for. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm Edinburgh, born and, born and bred. Uh, I've taken a keen interest in the, the sciences mainly um, from an early early uh, career move and uh, then that kind of went into ser- the service industry and uh, in parallel to that I did see uh, a lot wrong with society. And I think uh, I flatter myself by thinking I'm an engineer by trade initially and, and a problem solver or a problem identifier. And I try to solve as many as possible. And I realized that uh, business in particular was lacking. Uh, the late great Ellie Goldratt is one of the gurus or one of the few gurus I'm always uh, quoting. And he said that one of the, the, the least common thing in business is common sense. Right. And I came from, as I say, a, an engineering and scientific background, went into business. And in engineering and science, there are formula uh, and thesis and things you can test. But as soon as you get into business, they're all up for grabs because it's all, it's like sometimes you feel as if you're living in an episode of The Office. <laughs> you know, it's all three letter acronyms and, and management speak bingo. So that, as I say, a problem solver and a problem identifier. And I like the deductive process. Um, you know, almost like, a, you know, when you get to the end of a mystery movie, you can work out who's done it all. I like that kind of process. I've maybe not got the patience for uh, <laughs> to be Sherlock Holmes, but, but I, I think at least looking at my career, I've been very good at identifying some constraints and limitations and also bullshit and, <laughs> and things that don't make sense. You know, like people in, in business charge for per seat, for instance, in software. What's that all about? It's absolutely nothing to do with the value that relates to whatever any any, any company or, or individuals put in. So there's that side of things. And as I say, in parallel to that, I've been looking at society and politics and not with a big P, although I've been involved with a big P. Um, I tend to think of it as, as more about democracy and true democracy. And the fact that we spend an awful lot of time, a disproportionate amount of time, just talking about politics. And hence, I mean, you obviously... You obviously <laughs> hence, we have a politics podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> in which you're taking part. <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and people like you can, can, can translate and transcribe that into something better. Yep. And I don't mean just to make it easier for the great unwashed, but to engage with those who think they're not involved 
or they shouldn't be involved. And one of the one of the things that really frustrates me is you talk to the average Joe or Josephine in the street and they say, well, I'm not interested in politics. And you go, well, see when you're down the pub or in the restaurant or in the club or whatever, or at work, if you talk about the NHS education, what you think about those things, and of course they say yes, and you go, well, you are interested in politics. Mm. You know, and, and, and these very same people sometimes will say, oh, I don't bother voting. And I think, my God, you've got the strength of a ballot. Okay, it's, a, it's still a five-year dictatorship, but you've got the strength of a ballot to make your choice, and they choose not to be part of that process. Mm. Yet they'll go on and on about this, that, and the next thing. So I guess, as I say, looking back, if I can, <laughs> over the last God knows how many couple, a few decades, um, then there's a problem-solving, seeing things that are not quite right uh, with society and with business, I reckon is my, my particular strength. And I've tried in my own way to, to set about uh, addressing some of those issues. And what would you say in politics these days is uh, one of the most identifiable problems, in your opinion? Well, there's a number of problems. <laughs> yeah. The way it manifests itself... Maybe give you a top ten or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, and it also depends on which... Pers well, not so much be a perspective, but where you're located. In Scotland particularly, the biggest problem, obviously, is the fact that we've got a veneer of democracy. We think we've got a democracy. And I don't just mean, as I said earlier, that we've got the five five year dictatorship before you've you know, you've got every five years you've got the freedom uh, to vote and then it becomes a dictatorship. But there's this veneer of democracy now that we think things run in the way we've always thought they they, they they've run. For instance, when you even look at the likes of um, the banking crash was a great eye opener. Because everybody thought the bank, the banks worked in a certain way. Like you gave me the money because I'm the bank, and I lent lend it out to somebody, and then that they they give me payment back with interest, and I give you some of that. And you know everybody thought that's the way the world worked. But what actually happens with fractional banking and all the rest of it is they loan out much more than they've actually got. And you know what happened in two thousand and eight and thereafter, and then everybody started looking and thinking, well. The banking system doesn't work the way we think it is. Then folk were thinking, well, the economy doesn't work the way we think it is. And actually, economists themselves and politicians do not know how the economy works. Mm -hmm. And uh, a great book to read is the, the Deficit Myth, which tells you an awful lot about that. It was uh, one of the, it was uh, a woman who used to work for Barack Obama. And she said even he didn't know how the economy works because of the way and the language that we used was just not right. And we all think we live in a democracy because, you know, uh, Westminster is the mother of all parliaments. It's the mother F of all parliaments, <laughs> you know, because, um, I mean, somebody was talking about, um, you know, whether or not we could get back into Europe, which is one of the biggest issues. Um, and, of course, they were saying, well, actually, if the UK as a state wanted to get back into Europe, it couldn't because it doesn't meet the democracy requirements for being a state within the EU. That's interesting. In what sense? It's a cracker. I mean, there's, there's there's at least one. I mean, apart from the fact that the UK as a state now is eroding mm. all the, the, the rights and freedoms that you and I have as a citizen of the EU, bearing in mind we're a subject of the Crown, and the Crown in Scotland should be the people, but you know it's King Charles now. Um, but anyway, a, the UK is the has, has got a, a, a parliament with the second biggest non-elected legislative next to China 
Oh. Right? <laughs> so you've got 600 odd MPs, but you've got 800 to 900 odd lords and ladies and all these hangers on that are directly involved in your democracy mm. in a very undemocratic fashion. So second only to China, and there's only a few countries in the world, including Iran, which have religious people embedded in the system again undemocratically because they're not they're not voted there but you've got a number of of churchmen or women from the the church of england mm. and the lords you know so we do not constitute a proper democratic nation by a long shot and the very fact that the uk government can do you know all the all the corrupt stuff that they're doing with the uh, ppe equipment and their chumocracy as a, as everybody <laughs> now calls it um and they get away with it you yeah, know, it's I mean, and and the, and the elected ones, arguably, isn't proportional to what we're actually voting for. We now live in a scenario just now where the majority of people in the UK didn't vote for the Conservatives, and yet they're able to boast this 80-seat majority that gives them a mandate to do whatever the hell it is that they want to do. Absolutely. And it, it's funny mentioning mention EU because I've seen Jacob Rees-Mogg today said, look, if the, if the European... Convention of Human Rights doesn't work, then we'll just have to abolish it. And uh, in order to send people off to Rwanda, and you're thinking, what is going on here? You just, Ernest, you just can't make it up. No. I mean, 1984 and all that, you think that was a joke or a, or a, or a premonition or, or a warning from George Orwell back, you know, decades ago. Um, but it's here and now. When you can talk about, if we do not like the human rights that we've, we've agreed across Europe in modern dem inverted commas democratic nations and we've, we've we've done so over you know a, a period of decades since the war to keep us robustly uh, you know the, the fundamental rights uh, robustly protected they're talking about chipping them away and also they're even now talking just this week about reversing devolution in scotland for mm. instance when you consider that the tories have never ever been in power or sorry they've never been uh, the, the majority uh, opinion in Scotland since the, the 50s you know so that's 70 years without the Tories being in ascendancy in Scotland yet they're, they're talking about eroding away our rights reducing our Scottish Parliament which we voted for and the principle of the sovereignty of the Scots is something that I definitely um, recommend everybody looks at there's Salvo which is an organization looking at this but the principle of sovereignty of the people over the principle of the sovereignty of the parliament is a huge difference between Scots, not just law, but the way Scots values are embedded. And not only just our country and historians think it's a great idea, but if you actually look at it, its constitutional law, it's a whopping great protection mechanism for us. Mm. Um, but as I said, it's just one of these many things that's been eroded and, and, and we, it's basically rough, you know, road roughshod over the whole thing so you're a, a problem identifier and it's clear that you've identified this problem in, <laughs> in it's insurmountable seemingly form and is this what brought the the 16 year old uh chapping on people's doors campaign for independence is, is that what brought that about or was it something different it's, it, 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 i think it's a voyage of discovery and i think you'll find most people not just in, in terms of politics and nationalism go through a similar process it actually starts a wee bit earlier than that, maybe 12, 14 year old, when a great uncle of mine, uh, he was an amateur historian, and uh, he actually wrote four books and illustrated them all. He was a really talented guy. Wow. And he told me that all our history that we'd been taught 
bearing in mind we're the only country in the world that didn't until very recently teach our own children our own history in school, um, the history that was recognised as the real history was not the real history. Uh, we learned 1066, but we know nothing about 1314. You know, so it's, it, it's skewed. And I don't just mean it's all very Anglo-centric. It's actually wrong. I mean, as I said uh, earlier, I've, I've been doing some work on the Jacobites about this, and, it's, and they've been completely rebranded. Uh, but anyway, that's uh, perhaps a discussion for another day. But at that time, I realised that there was things not right. And partly it was things to do with culture, tradition, uh, I picked up my guitar and became a wee bit of a folk singer at, sc <laughs> at school and then went on to sing in the pubs Love a wee that. bit. But it was great, great fun. Have you brought but your guitar today? Or you I haven't brought song, my right? guitar today, but you never know. Maybe that's for the next <laughs> yeah. session. I'll bring my guitar along to the studio. <laughs> but um, it was basically around about the cultural and traditions that I saw were being, we could call it ethnically cleansed. It sounds, that sounds like a, you know maybe over the top as a phrase, but at the end of the day, if you've got a culture that's been completely washed over, consciously washed over, then you could say it was ethnically cleansed. So I started off being, if you like, a cultural nationalist, realising that the language, the traditions, the music, our way of life was, was, was being eroded, if not uh, completely dissolved. And then I started to look at, when I was about 17, 18, I saw the Thatcher years. My God, you know, that was a grounding that everybody got in what what not to do in society then i saw the the disappearance of the manufacturing base you know i saw our parents or grandparents generations the whole manufacturing base decimated people going around and you know you had uh, during the relics of the ravenscraig when that you know when that was which was actually quite an effectual uh, plant was was taken down uh, when it still worked in preference for keeping british steel plants down south so there was all this, you know, and Singer was the same. I think the Singer plant in Scotland was one of the best in the small group, but it, but it closed before the one down south. So I saw all those, um, you know, not just the brain drain, but the wealth drain and the power drain. And then that made me sit up and say, well, I'm not only just a cultural nationalist, but I'm an economic nationalist. And, and looking at the whole thing from, you know, from the workforce, the fact that the Tories had the dogma that, that actually stipulated yes that it was a good thing or an acceptable thing to have you know two or three million people in the economy unemployed that was their business model you know the whole neoliberal model mm. of, of of the economy and i thought well this isn't right you know everybody should be in a fulfilling role in life and rewarded for being in a fulfilling role so i started as i said to be an economic nationalist and then that morphed latterly into realizing how much of the, the cultural problems, the economic problems were down to the fact of the lack of the true democracy. So it's more of a, a if you like, a, rather than a, a, a blood and soil nationalism, it was much more about civic nationalism, you know, about looking after everybody, all of us first, regardless of your sex, your creed, your colour. And Bashir uh, Man, was a Bashir Man who said, um, who put it really well, who said, it doesn't matter where we're from. What matters is where we're all going together. And I thought, I like that. Mm. And then, of course, we had the European dimension, you know, which has come to the fore uh, in Scottish nationalism, particularly um, pre and post Brexit. And we saw, well, my God, we've been pulled out of Europe. I'm suddenly not expected to think of myself as a European because I'm 
a Brit, and I thought, this is just wrong. <laughs> I mean, I can't understand anybody in the right mind yeah. supporting the United Kingdom now, because it's not, it's not this co cosy, warm, fuzzy family. It's a state that's there to, to purely and simply orchestrate it to put the value or, or extract the value into the hands of the few. That's what it's all about. That's what Brexit was all about, was safeguarding offshore accounts and all the rest of it and making sure, and it wasn't taking back control for England even, although there was a bit of that, it was more about taking back control for the people who were in power yeah, in England. Yeah, yeah well, I, I mean, I've, my mind went there to when I was interrailing just after Brexit, actually, and I always had this sense of jealousy amongst these Europeans that, that really did feel like a family. They can all kind of understand each other's languages, they're all close together. They're all very, very similar in their culture, and you, you kind of st stuck out like a sore thumb, really. If you're if you're a Brit going abroad uh, these days, and there, there's that sense of ignorance, they don't want to communicate with you because of you know what's been going on, you know, in, in macro politics. Precisely. And uh, when you consider that in Scotland we had more ships and people moving around in ships, you know, three hundred years ago to 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 Europe, and now we've not even got any passenger ferries going from Europe. Mm. None. Okay, okay, we've got the you know the the big cruise liners <laughs> pop in occasionally, but you know we're being got, I mean we're, we are talking about getting the Versailles ferry back up and running uh, to go to mm. to the Low Countries or to to Buda or whatever, um, but you know there's there was actually more connections with Europe and now we've actually just recently we've now got an active diktat from the UK government going out to the embassies and going out to the Foreign Office in in uh, the UK's Foreign Office and saying do not help. The, the Scottish government abroad. Yeah, I've seen keep, that. Keep an eye on them and spy on them, for goodness sake. Now, <laughs> this is a wholly democratic, completely legitimate um, function of our governance in Scotland is being spied upon by the UK state actively and openly to, th to thwart our connections with the rest of the world, culturally, commercially, or whatever. And, and then, you know, I think it's paranoia I'm, because we're the opinion polls are so close towards you know it's it's, it's very much around that 50 percent mark for independence certainly these days do you think that comes from paranoia of not wanting to take that punt on a referendum just in case it didn't go well, you know what way? i think it is it's, it's beyond paranoia they've always been paranoid anyway and, and rightly so it's desperation it's absolute desperation because the the state as it is now it's it's almost shrinking because, you know, the thinking people in, in England are wondering what's going on now. They've listened to a whole lot of shit as well. And they're now saying, that can't be true. You know, when you put all these things out in the great, uh, you know, the, the, the blog sphere or whatever yeah. and say, <laughs> you know, why is it that on one, on one complete paragraph, a unionist can tell a Scot that for 300 years we've been an economic basket case thank God for England's largesse and they've supported us or propped us up. But on the other hand, they could say in the very same paragraph, Scotland's never had it so good and isn't it doing so well. <laughs> you know, you, you say that just to the Scot and they, they sit there and go, that doesn't compute. If you say that to the English person, if you really think about it, if they thought about it, they suddenly come to the same conclusions that something's not right here. Mm. It doesn't make sense. And I've always equated it to the likes of, uh, you know, if the UK was a was a, a company, and the headquarters was in London, or the head office was England, and Scotland was just a branch, which it is for many of the political parties, <laughs> the UK political parties, of course, they're not, they're just a branch of the, of 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 the paymasters down south, but 
if that was the case in Scotland or, or the, the company branch that was Scotland didn't make money, it'd be shut down or the management would be changed or something. But no, you know. So That's interesting. I want to bring you back to the language, the quite strong language mm. that you used a minute ago. Like you said, ethnic cleansing, which you, which you admitted obviously was a bit strong. Do we need to sort of watch when we use this kind of language? I remember speaking to Mary Black when she came on the podcast and she was saying, you know, using words like colonisation does a disservice to the contribution that Scotland had in the colonisation of other nations, for mm -hmm. example, and she sort of warned against that kind of language. Do you think, although we need to be careful what we say, do you think Scotland is a colony? That's a great question, and it's actually one we're deliberating about just now. If you look at the technical terms that the UN applies to a colonisation, yes, because we would go a different direction had we had our own control. Is that, is that basic principle well, right? Even, you only have to look at last year's Supreme Court decision, right? Now, everybody was told and everybody was led to believe, the English as well as the Scots and the Welsh for that matter, that the Union the, of, of Kingdoms, the UK, was a union of separate nations coming together under you know, one, one uh, umbrella. And it was an equal family of nations. And the Supreme Court decision just showed you that was a whole lot of baloney because effectively it stated that England effectively through that or through the United Kingdom framework could actually call the shots. So technically, if you actually look at the, the what the UN says constitutes a colonization, then we probably meet, if not definitely meet all those criteria. Now, Mary was right, because obviously we've been party to an awful lot of the British Empire nonsense. Yeah, and shackles of the... Oh my God, yeah. we haven't democratised the world and all the rest of it. India was the richest... I didn't even know this till recently. This is the trouble with all this stuff that's now coming out. India was the richest country in the world. The world. Richer than any other nation or group of nations until the British Empire took it over. Wow. And, they, and there's, there's figures going around that they actually robbed trillions of pounds worth. You know? Back then as well. Back That's... then as well. So yes, we've been involved with a whole shitload of stuff. Colonisation, slavery, definitely. But now we're coming to terms with that, thankfully. If you can come to terms with that. I mean, it's, it's our forebears' fault rather than our own. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, when you look at the likes of... And talking about colonisation, though, and ethnic cleansing, it is a strong word, but... We didn't know that, see, before and after the Jacobite Rebellion, apart from the, the jiggery-pokery around about the Act of Union where, yes, we had to sign in the dotted line, otherwise England would have invaded us. And it's all painted as happy-clappy, coming together, and now aren't we wonderful? And what happened was you had pirates, which were state-sponsored privateers by, by the English state, you had um, a massing uh, of arms and people on the border. And, you know, you had the usual kind of stuff going around to say, like, you better sign this or else. But what I didn't know, and I'm a passive kind of um, historian or armchair historian, that uh, after Culloden, Scotland was occupied for six years. Wow. We didn't know that. Uh, no, I didn't know that. There was something like 450 to 500 garrisons around Scotland. I've got a map that I could show you. <laughs> and I thought, my God. And you know, nobody knew this stuff. And likewise, nobody knew. I know I've got a, a bit of a beard in my bonnet because I've just looked at it with the Jacobites. 
But did you know that in the side of a Jacobite sword, there was prosperity for Scotland and no union carved on the thing? Right. Carved on the thing. So actually, Bonnie Prince Charlie, for instance, was looking to not just you know become you know regime change and change the the, the monarchy of those nations. Uh, he wanted Scotland to become independent again because he realised it was not working with this huge elephant in the room because they're, you know, ten times, or at least up to at those times, and the eight times larger than Scotland in terms of population. What a fascinating history so, lesson you've got. again, <laughs> ethnic cleansing. Yeah, I, I, I well, understand. It's not just, like, I was going to say, just, just, before, just before we move on, that remember, of course, from the Jacobite times, when we lost, the Jacobites lost the cause, right up till the end of the 19th century, there was tens of thousands of people cleaned, ethnically cleaned, from the Scottish Highlands, for instance. And there were some in the borders, of course, let's not forget, it's not just the Highland clearances. There was the Lowland clearances. Thousands of people shipped off, which our wonderful historian, in inverted commas, uh, oh, what's his face, the long-haired chap, I always forget his name, Neil, uh, or the, the guy from GB News, uh, their favourite uh, non-historian, he described it as emigration, our people were forced from the land. Oh Their houses God. were burned. And he described it as emigration. And it was ethnic cleansing. Dude, that's, that or is... economic cleansing. It doesn't matter. People were thrown off and ended up in Newfoundland and then in Australia and what have you. Yeah, well, I mean, they use some interesting language on, on sort of all facets of society. But I guess that's a, probably another conversation. Well, I was going to say, economic cleansing, if you like. Um... Why is it we've been brought up thinking that the only way we can get on in life is to leave Scotland? Why is that? Mm. It just, it's, just, it's just a nonsense. An American wouldn't think that. A French person wouldn't think that. A German person wouldn't think that. Certainly anybody in the Scandinavian countries, which are comparable to us and are all wealthier than, not just us, but wealthier than other countries in the world. Mm. You know, something, I, th I don't know, it's a top... What, top four out of seven countries in the world in terms of prosperity mm. are Nordic. Anyway, but so yeah, I mean, well, I mean that speaks to you know business for Scotland and their message. And uh, as we know, you're an early member of Business for Scotland, and they asked why does a nation with more natural wealth and economic resources pair heads than any other European nation that is both oil rich, possesses a strong and highly resilient onshore economy booming exports, highly educated population, low unemployment, a wide range of strong key economic sectors, um, and, the, and we suggest that Scotland's finances are weak for, for some reason. You can't make it up. And when you look at it, as you've just put it there, it's succinctly, that's a starting point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember de de debating with somebody about the whole you know, independence question, and, and the guy shouted across the room as if it, as if it was a point to make. You just want to be Norway. <laughs> I say, well, happy days. You know, right, we do. <laughs> it's one of the wealthiest nations in the world. It's got the, you know, yeah. the, the Nordic countries have got such a small, well, smaller gap between the rich and poor. They look after people. I mean, Norway is a great example because they've got the oil fund, which they've, you know, I think it's a couple of hundred thousand pounds equivalent for every person in Norway is stashed for them. So they look after their people. 
And mm. I've always thought, uh, what was it, Leslie Riddick put it well, she said, stop thinking of Scotland as the cold, barren north of the United Kingdom and start thinking of it as the, the warm, fertile south <laughs> of the Nordics. That's a belter. <laughs> <laughs> Which again is a brilliant framing, if you ask yeah, me. Absolutely, reframing. Um, and it, it's it's interesting that you you know your defence of that that term ethnic cleansing because I remember it was just a couple of years ago, and Boris Johnson was you know talking about Ukraine and he quite specifically said there should be nothing that gets in the way from a small European nation <laughs> and their self determination. And then quite quite rightly, I think people in Scotland were like. Hang on a second here. Uh, we voted for that, but we got that taken away from us, and now you're not letting us have a, a recount in terms of what we actually want from our future. And then obviously people flooded in and said, this is nothing like Ukraine, that's an insult, and blah, blah. And it's like, we get that. Yes. <laughs> but we're just saying, you know, the, the logic here and the thinking behind here is similar. So in fairness to you, that you've got examples that do mirror the modern day. And, and, and speaking of that comparison... Do you think the case for independence is stronger than it was, say, when you started campaigning for independence, when you when you started to learn about, you know, do, do you think it's stronger? Absolutely. Because I think um, even, dare I say it, uh, say 100 years ago, Scotland was less... How old are you? <laughs> I feel a bit that old after COVID, I think. But um, I think about 100 years ago, you could argue that Scotland was not relatively free, but it was a lot freer. Um, you could argue in many ways but um, I think as time goes on the case for independence becomes even stronger and it's not just the fact that the you know events dear boy events or whatever um, you know that Brexit's happened and manufacturing base has been decimated you know all these uh, incidents that happen over the, the years and decades but it's also people are actually finding out how things actually work and what's been done and how policy after policy and it's not just the Tories I mean that's why I'm quite adamant that we should not refer to it as the Tory government does this the Tory it's the UK government does that this and that you mentioned the principle of self-determination that even Boris upheld for the <laughs> for the Ukrainians not often he's flying the flag for the, the independence cause but <laughs> does not uh, apply to Scotland the Labour Party are exactly the same you get stalwarts in the Labour Party, you get Corbyn, you get Starmer, you get uh, Galloway, God forbid, and all these people stand up for others' rights. But when it comes to Scottish rights, silence. Absolute silence. Yeah, well, I mean, Corbyn did actually, to be fair, um, I don't know whether this is, you know, tactical in, in the sense that his position in the Labour Party was under threat because of Starmer. But he did come out and say, look, if, if Scotland have got a pro-independence majority in that parliament they should be having a referendum obviously everything he said is being <laughs> quite blatantly ignored by Keir Starmer what, what do you think about that relationship well the, the funny thing is just go back to Corbyn's statement there he was right because I mean Corbyn comes across as a, a democrat and I, I, there's a lot of people in the in the in the, the, the labor movement obviously have come from you know from cr the, almost the cradle into the labor movement because they were democrats but they very very quickly change and if you're even Jeremy Corbyn at the head of a Labour movement or a Labour party and you allow the very same things to go on for years, regardless of your own personal position on it, then you're a hypocrite because you either step down to let somebody who, who reflects those, those values and principles or you fight for them and change. Mm. And he said all these nice, warm, wee things. 
but it was still the same Labour Party, which is the most bureaucratic, autocratic party you'll have ever seen ever since New Labour came in. You, yeah. you know, you know the script. Never been the same, has it? So the values are the, the values have gone, and that's the one thing. Our values in Scotland are no better than anybody else's. But what I have realised is that our values are completely different, different from yeah. those from the British state, not the English people, but the, those in control of England and those in control of the British state, our values are completely different. They're, they're just going in an absolute separate di direction. Yeah, I mean, well, we, we've talked a lot about democracy uh, this evening, and, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, people in Scotland wanted some sort of devolution maximum settlement after that independence referendum vote. You know, we, 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 were, prom we were promised all these powers by Alistair Carmichael and, and quote Alistair Darling, I think it was as well, um, and you know it was 55-45 but there was a real sense that we wanted some sort of reform we did want more powers coming in we were certainly promised that there was I think if Devo Max was on the ballot paper it probably would have won on that day personally that's that's just my opinion the speculation of course um, and that, what I remembered there is that I don't know if you've seen that led by Donkey's investigation where they they caught Quasi Quarting and Matt Hancock yes, <laughs> applied for this yes. the, the Asian um a consultancy firm and you know I, I mean i found that astounding i really did i, I threw myself into my writing the next day after uh, looking at it but what i did say i didn't i didn't end by sort of criticizing the conservatives or anything i actually ended that article by saying if, if labor now feast on this content and say we are going to change we're going to be like drastic changes to the westminster system is broken we we need all these changes the, the voting system for a start you know and then they don't do it i think they're just as culpable i think that's just as bad you know oh absolutely there's one thing i've learned and, I, and as i say as a marketer never mind as a political animal as a marketer i tend to listen to others i look at other people's sides i always have and even with the best will in the world i'll look at the other side and the labor party and all the alternatives if there are any down there and really at the end of the day they all end up doing the same thing mm. and let's face it Alistair Darling of this lovely city here he's got a big cloak and sits in the Lords now <laughs> you know absolutely no values and scruples because these people started out life left-leaning socialists whatever you want to call them but looking for a more democratic accountability and you know, and, and, and doing nice things um, to, 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 in terms of equality and making a better society. And what have they done? They've taken the king's shilling and they're now ermine robed and sitting in the House of Lords. It's all just a veneer. And I've actually got a lovely Venn diagram which shows the three main UK parties as much the same as, as each other. And the thing is that those that are behind the parties, you know, you've got two or three people behind most of the, the printed media in the UK. You've got the BBC Trust, you know, who's supposed to run the BBC, and you've got lackeys, you've got at least one placement from the, the Tory party in there. You've got a chair who's on a really shaky um, shaky situation just now because he's got this, uh, this interesting relationship with um, Boris Johnson and perhaps others. So, you know, you've got this cosy wee club that's never going to change. And that's why you see the likes of the Corbyns of this world, they have to conform or they're just dissolved out of the equation. Mm. You know? I, I'm, you know, you're, as I called you, a marketing maestro. <laughs> I have Thank to, you very much. I have to ask you about the, 
the series of Labour's social media adverts um, in recent times have posed this controversial tie-in Rishi Sunak to not putting away you know, child molesters, I think that was the language used. Did you, did you see those ads? I, in I didn't actually see that because I've been buried in a, in a couple of projects for the right, last okay. several weeks. And, <laughs> I, and, I, I, and I have actually been staying away from social media as best as I can. Oh, so yeah, I, I can't blame you there. <laughs> it's an absolute... Yeah, and that's something that worries me as well, is that online trolls are actually dictating, you know, the way the, the media plays out in its coverage of politics. Like, I was meant to have Colin Mackay on here um, in a couple of weeks time but he's he's emailed me back and said look i can't because i'm under pressure in terms of my image and my pr that on social media mm -hmm. that it could be miscued as you know leaning whatever way even with our brand even with our goals with no other intention you know i, I invite every kind of politician on here I'm, I'm very fair i give them all a fair handshake and even that you know he can't even come and support a local media company he's just standing yeah. around the corner if, if, if we move on to social media to discuss that the whole question of social media that's where my worlds collide you know the marketing world and the, and the politics because i look at this and i've looked at it through a, a framing prism and and i've realized that framing is everywhere now it's always been there it's oh, been yeah. there for centuries for goodness sake but particularly hot now i mean people for instance discount what boris says or what trump says you know as and laughs at it but they share them. They share the memes. They yep. share the messages, and and you know better than I because I know you've got the background in, in psychology, etc. That these are the things that stick. The stupidness, the, the 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 ridiculousness of things do not stick. It's the core messages that stick subconsciously, and I mean, not only that, that which are. I mean, these are planned. There's a playbook of stuff going out from Trump, from Boris, from mm. all these people. They've got very, very good professional people behind them. I mean, good in terms of slick, not as in right. uh, as as in very Competent. nice, all right. as in very nice. Um, but anyway, I mean, you, you have to look at I mean, even um, a John Nicholson, you know, the SNP MP the other day there released a, 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 a small clip, and he was he was saying that uh, what was it now? Uh, somebody had you'd think misquoted him as saying that there was a big conspiracy about something I can't remember what it was uh, specifically but what happened was it wasn't what happened was the Express I think it was said there was a conspiracy that John said there was and all of a sudden that just got picked up by all the other media yeah and he said I didn't even talk about this as a conspiracy in the first place so that was wrong and in fact they offered them money to, to, to and he says I'm you know I'm not interested in that. I'm just interested in the traction, um, but that kind of thing just spins out of all proportion. Yep. And you know, you know as well and as I. Well, it's 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 even worse now because of social media, because of how out of control it mm. literally is. You know, framing used to be a little bit more obvious, and you had news gatekeeping, so you could kind of point out it was a bit more, you know, it was well, a bit well, more restrained. You know, the thing is, Ernest, one of the big problems is we used to have journalists. Yeah, exactly. Even if there were leaned upon by their editors Aye. the state you know coerced they still were journalists but now you've got journalists Aye. 
Won't let so me chat and shout. Journalists, <laughs> absolutely. So, and a twenty-four hour t- uh, news and everything is, is partly to blame because they've they've just got too much to churn out and they have to churn Aye. out. So they're all. And then they rely on the same digital platforms that they're going to put out. So it's this vicious circle of information. And they want to, and in the UK it's particularly bad because they want to ingratiate themselves with the the establishment. So if you're a journalist, the last thing you want to do is write about Charles, King Charles, in a bad way. The last thing you want to do is, you know, speak about, you know, the people, the actors in the British state who may favour you and give you a nice wee job sometime. So they don't want to rock the boat. So we don't have journalists. You never see a proper investigative journalist story. Mm-hmm. Or there are very, very few on the ground. I know in, in the blog sphere, that's a different message because there's people like yourself that can dig under stuff because you don't have all these shackles of the regular media. But in the regular media, who, let's face it, still control everything purely by just the weight of the information that they send out, the amount of information they send out, is still very effective. Yeah, and, and wolf whistles—you get wolf whistles all over the place. I mean, it's basic psychology: the negative campaign, and you know, negative information is more likely to stick in your brain than positive information. Yeah. It, it alerts; it literally gives you physical sensations of, you know, it's you know, basic flight or flight. You know, you, your body is literally reacting to negative information where it might not positive information. Absolutely, um, and, and indeed, just just taking your point there, because as I say, you know more about the psychology than I. And from a marketer's perspective, you know exactly that. I mean, if, for instance, if, I don't know, the Scottish government said, um, we're going to put an extra thousand nurses out there. How much how much traction would that have in social media? Not a lot. But if they said we're taking away thousand nurses, yep. you know, that would be hundredfold. Not not least the fact that the, you know, that the unionists and, and the media would actually make a big deal of it. But it'd be totally out of proportion. Well, what I was going to ask you was, you know, it, it, you know, in terms of that marketing because i feel like we've been so overwhelmed with so much negative negativity and gutter politics that people are actually sick of it people are actually starting to turn off a wee bit it's not working in the same way that it used to because people are so sick of it you know we've gone through three years of pandemic where people are just sitting on their phones and you just can't escape it so i was wondering because interestingly enough in 2014 you know, it was the negative campaigning that got the the no campaign over the line. You know, I think I think there was a record set for the amount of times <laughs> um, the person on the advert said you're going to lose your job in a single minute from the from the no campaign. And you know, it was that negative information. It was that it was that negative information versus the yes, the the movement of hope in 2014 that that couldn't quite get them there with Scotland. So I would I was wondering in in light of all that, how would you market the next independence pitch? I'll tell you exactly how we do it, and it's something that's been worked on just now. To date, to be fair to the whole yes movement, we've collectively said it's not going to be so bad after independence. <laughs> you know, because if you start going down the rabbit hole of well, what's it going to be, what we're going to do after independence, you know, you know, social policies, whatever, economic economic policies, then you get infighting. And then, so the best thing everybody was doing is let's just forget until after independence and we'll sort ourselves out, you know? <laughs> and, and, but, but is that so, dangerous though? Is that, well, it yeah. is dangerous, but the thing is I could understand it because nobody wanted a big bun fight because, mm. you know, the Scottish Socialists will have a different idea from the, the Green Party and the SNP or whatever it is. Mm. And Civic Scotland will have, you know, bun fights all over the place, you know, as to how Scotland would look like after independence. Yeah, of course, yeah. But I'm saying now though, the best thing we can actually do is actually show 
and there is some some clips coming out soon five years hence say as if that clip was present day and I'm a nurse or I'm a doctor or I'm a teacher or I'm a council worker or a street sweeper whatever I am I'm a pensioner or I'm a student this is what independence is meant for me you know we're back in the EU I can now jump on a plane and go to France without all this palaver we're taking another million people into Scotland because we need more people here and we've got and people have actually started to come back the diaspora have come back because they're all educated and they want to help a new Scotland and we've been able to do this we've you know put down the bills in people's pockets for for energy because we're the most energy rich nation on the planet now you know and you know that's the kind of vision we have to do we have mm. to give the vision rather than just say oh, it's not going to be as bad or just pointing out the corruption and and the, the inadequacies and the and the non-democratic state that we live in because again as you said there and you're adding to the burden and people go oh yeah I don't want to listen to all this negativity yeah. but whereas if you can actually show them a positive thing you know it's all it's it is the you know I have a dream you know the uh, Martin Luther King stuff that you want to give rather than the well you know in quarter quarter three 2027 you know GDP will be a wee bit better you know this isn't inspiring yeah. to anybody and I think this is where Nicola Sturgeon got it right so she had um people would argue it's a populist um, sort of argument for independence we the Scottish people need to protect ourselves for the, the demonised elite in Westminster and she she, very, she did a good job of separating us and, and distancing ourselves from that association with Westminster and she talks about the, the archaic sort of doll drums of Westminster the, the old fashioned boys club I think Mary Black uh, called it on this podcast do you think that but this is a very sort of narrow minded vision of independence painting it as this haven of inclusivity for example you know we need to protect human rights and you know you know protect the most marginalized in society and make sure they're they've got an equal say in in, in how we do things but obviously this is a very narrow-minded view of how independence would look because as we've seen with kate forbes and the amount of votes that she got in that leadership election contest the snp is a much broader church than people initially thought but I'm wondering, because Nicola got us so close, do you think those are the kind of progressive uh, principles that the SNP need to preserve, or do they need to modernise with more hard fiscal projections alongside this positive sort of, you know, I've recalled it sort of painting it as you want, mm -hmm. independence and we'll deal with it later. That I think you're right. I think, I think, paraphrasing the question there, I think we have to be more assertive. It's not enough to be, as William McAvenny, you know, the, the writer said, uh, apart from what or meddle with me has been the kind of, you know, the Latin um, slogan, if you like, as a marketer, um, a slogan or tagline underneath the, 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 the crest of arms of Scotland. It's, it's no very fair has been, you know, if you like, the way Scotland has looked at itself and, and the way things are set up. It's no very fair. Now, that's not very assertive. That's just kind of shrugging the shoulders. Yeah. We actually need to assert ourselves. I mean, a great thing is, and, and, you, and, you, and it came to mind when you were talking earlier on about uh, a business for Scotland, a believe in Scotland, is that Gordon McIntyre Kemp, who heads, heads up both of those org, um, initiatives, he put it to us. He said, basically, if Scotland were to become independent now, we'd be the richest nation that's ever become independent. 
That's interesting. Yeah. And I thought, oh, goodness me now. So there's a whole reframing exercise. <laughs> it goes back. Buzzwords, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. As a marketer, I'm only now understanding the power of framing and language, understanding yeah. the language power. Absolutely. And I, so I think we need to get the front foot and say, look, this is a vision. We are modern and democratic. What we aren't is in terms of the British state modern and democratic because it's the old boys club, it's who you know, there's all this corruption, rampant corruption going on. I mean, we have an investigation uh, into our first minister and her husband, an investigation, that's all I can say, is... And then you've got a big blue tent sitting in the front. I mean, that's front an, that's that's another story you know? because my cousin came up from Liverpool who was an ex-copper, and he was asking me about it with no sort of political ties up here, and he was like, "What did you think of that?" I was like, "It was it was pretty extreme." He was like, "Ennis, I've never seen murder investigations with that many police presence and yep. that kind of uh, uh, maybe." <laughs> To get to that level, it would have to be a murder investigation. Well, I, 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 I was, without going on to the, that particular subject, if that was in London, where you've got billions being secreted away in overt corruption to the pals of the, P, the PM or whomever, you know, you've got a certain a, a person from the House of Lords who's escaped and gone away with her... <laughs> her, um, her, uh, her she questionable, shall not be named. <laughs> her who shall not be named... Uh, questionable, questionable activities which she's not held to account for. Mm. It goes back to the journalists and the sycophants and the media who will not go after that and, and also it's horrible that the journalists won't even go after those big, huge, big, overtly corrupt stories that everybody's interested in and want to see justice. The justice system itself isn't going after them. Now that tells you an awful lot when the Crown-appointed justice system the whole democracy, the state mechanism, the establishment will not go after these people who are overtly corrupt right at the top. And they've got ties to, you know, the Russian oligarchs and all the rest of it. My God, can you imagine if, if our first minister had ties to a Russian oligarch <laughs> who took away during COVID PPE money and gave it to their pals? Know. You know, my God, they'd be in jail and rightly so. But yeah. for instance, you know, for some reason, if you represent London in the mother of parliaments, then you're you're off scot free. And I hate using the word scot free because where the hell did that phrase? <laughs> yeah, the the one the one I always think of is, imagine those parties in Downing Street was happening in Butte House. Yeah, like imagine yeah. the meltdown that would happen if yeah. that. Yeah, just just crazy. But it'd be more than the blue tents. Everybody, there'd be SWAT team in there. I know exactly, but <laughs> you know, it's just it's just ridiculous. But but as I said, just go back to what you were saying earlier on. We need to we need to even be much more assertive and get in the front foot. I don't just mean as a political movement and everything. I just think it, because people want something new and something to look forward to. You know, you mentioned earlier on about the negativity, and you know, as I say, because you've got a background in psychology, etc., that and and that negative messaging is much more powerful than positive in terms of its, you know, its, in, its indelibility. It always gets under the skin. Uh, but people do want hope. They do want to see things getting better, and uh, and the thing is, it's there's just this machine churning out and I think it's not just negativity to win the argument against Scottish independence I think it's not just negativity because it may, you know it sells papers or whatever mm. I think it's because it's the easy route for people to, to use because they have no positive messages this is this is what I saw because I mapped this out 
during the last independence campaign in Scotland, the, the, the messaging, I mapped it all out, and everything was negative on the no side. It wasn't just the word no, which I thought was great because I thought that would have worked no for thanks. us. No thanks. <laughs> yeah, but you know, no, it was just all negative. And I think it wasn't just because there's clever people behind it who know that's indelible and it's, you know, it gets right into the psyche. What they did was they looked at that and went, well, actually, that's all we've got because we do not have a positive case. Now, if you ask a unionist now, in, you know, in a if you see even in, I don't know, the debate nights or uh, question time, to make a positive case for the union, they can't make one now because ever since 2014, all of their things have now blown up and been shown to be aye, just well, I, I remember Wizard of Oz stuff behind the curtain. Aye, you know? no, I remember so clearly when Ruth Davidson came to my school um, to deliver a talk around that time. They they brought in um, they brought in Ruth Davidson, Alistair Darling, and then an SNP councillor. That's that's what they brought in my school. And uh, I remember Ruth Davidson. She was taking questions, and I, I think it must have been sixteen or seventeen at the time. But I remember because uh, you know I, I learned uh, how I got into politics. I was really interested in that referendum in particular. And I remember saying to her, "Look, how can you come to schools across Scotland and say to us all?" Especially with my peers who are, you know, pretty clueless. Like they, they haven't read about it. The the only way to keep your sort of EU membership to keep your summer holidays in that is to vote no. That's the only way to guarantee it because we've got a vote in, in like two years time. We've got like five percent of the say or something. She was like, oh, but would you not give them the say? Would you not give them the vote? And I was like, well, that's not what I asked. <laughs> I'm asking you. You right here are coming to schools, of of kids that barely know anything about it you know they'll maybe read up a wee bit and make up their mind they'll probably make up their mind of what their parents are doing and you're saying as you only get your summer holidays mm -hmm. if you vote yes i was like how can you give that guarantee when we've got that vote in two years time she wouldn't answer the question i will never forget it because she um the representative that brought uh like walked her back to the front of the school, he, like she said to him, like, oh, I don't want to give a great innocence vote with that. I think that's for sure. Well, um, I was going to say, when you look at all these promises, and, and I know we've, we've talked about this offline, is that, you know, I have looked at the, the top 20 um, issues to look out for if you're being gaslit as an abused spouse. And I think actually, and it's not too much to say again, being very careful with my, my, my words and my, my use of language, Scotland has been the abused spouse in this relationship. If you take the top 20 things off any website that's talking about spousal abuse and, you know, uh, abuse and stuff, and, and, you, and you stick them in a big, you know, just copy and paste them into a document, stick them on your wall. As you've done, I believe. As, as I have done, and you look at question time, you look at the media, you look at the stuff that the unionists in the state comes up with, you can see every single one of those items coming out of their language you can't stand in your own two feet you've not got enough money you'll be nothing without me oh you promise to stay oh it'll get better don't worry etc etc and one of the things i've been saying to unionists in particular who are still holding out hope i'm saying okay do you think it's ever going to get better i mean the precursor question to that is are things really nice in scotland for you and for for society oh no of course not because we've got xyz okay so how long are you going to wait mm. this is a great question how long are you going to wait and do you think things are going to change to make that better and the answer patently is no 
So they either walk away because they realise that and they don't want to have that discussion <laughs> or they get this epiphany and they go, you know something, we've given it, or that, that person, that individual has given it decades. Their families have yep. probably been unionists, whatever. How long are we going to give it before all our rights are reduced? There's a rump of a Scottish Parliament. We have a privatised healthcare service in Scotland, etc., etc. All our energy is taken away, all our water's taken away, our energy is getting taken away as it stands. I mean, they're even talking about dumping more nuclear waste over in the west coast of Scotland from the MOD sites, dumping it legally because we cannot stop it. So how bad do things have to get before even the unionists turn around and go, we have been framed. We have been conditioned. So I feel sorry. In fact, I was asked just, it was um, about, when was it now? It was just the day after the referendum result, uh, Scottish referendum, uh, independence referendum result by BBC Radio 5. And they said, well, you know, how do you feel? And I said, well, apart from gutted, you know, the, the first initial reaction, and I told them that, is I feel sorry for the unionist voter, the no voter, because they have been completely hoodwinked. Mm. And what's happened, they know they've been hoodwinked now. So you get a small rump that'll be entrenched and, and just, you know, cognitive dissonance or something, they will pretend it didn't happen. But a vast bulk of them will be going, I was sold up up. Uh, you know, yeah. and they feel they feel a, a little bit silly for for believing that. But I don't, I don't, I don't point my finger at them and say you were, you know, it's your fault because there's such a machine to condition people. They're they're conditioning me as well. They're conditioning you. They're conditioning all the thinking classes of the chatterati, and it's it's relentless that we believe things. We believe like Boris Johnson and Trump are stupid. We believe that. They're patently not stupid. I'm not saying they're doing they're not doing stupid things, but they're playing a playbook that we are supposed to think, oh well, we're not that interested, just as you were saying earlier on in this. It's turning people off. Mm. And what better for a state to be undemocratic? The best thing they can do is to turn people away from democracy. That's why in France, you know, they try to raise the uh, the retirement age. And the French take to the streets. Now, I'm not advocating any kind of <laughs> strong stuff. Well, let's see if Nicola Sturgeon gets arrested, then we might, we might, we might well but do. But my God, in Scotland, in the UK, we sit there and go, well, that's not very fair. Mm. You know, it's about time we got a bit bullish and said, look, we're asserting things. We're asserting the sovereignty of the people. We're asserting the fact that I am European. I'm asserting the fact that we want more immigrants here because we need them. You know, assert, assert, assert. Because, my God, if we don't do it, then who the hell's going to do it for us? And when is it all going to change? It's never going to change. And it's just going to get worse. Well, we'll end on that note. What a oh, no. <laughs> on a negative note. Yeah, no, no, not at all. Is, is the UK our soon-to-be ex-girlfriend? Is this the toxic <laughs> relationship that we're currently living in? Are they cheating on us? Well, <laughs> here's a wee thought for you, actually. Because until almost a couple of weeks ago, I thought the analogy of an abused spouse was a good one, and it is. It's very good when you actually look at the two and you think, surely not, and you look at it and you think, yes, it is. It's absolutely a reflection of an abused spouse and ga being gaslit. And if you actually, if you go back to look at Malta, India, Ireland, America, we're all told you're too wee, too pure, too stupid, and all the rest of it. Look what happened to them. Even we Maltas doing quite well. But anyway, 
I used to think, or at least I still think, the abusive, the abused spouse allegory or, or, or comparison is is valid, and it's, I still think it is. But also, we're actually being kidnapped. Because if you look at the Treaty of Union and you look at the claim of right and you look at the legal, the actual constitution and, and constitutional law as it relates to Scotland, you find out that we were actually kidnapped, not just cajoled into a marriage of convenience that we that we, we ended up, you know, uh, as being the poorer partner because of it. But if you actually look at that time, you can find out in constitutional law that we were actually kidnapped. And it, it sounds like just a wee bit of, you know, something that maybe up in the high street and the, and the, the law society's offices will have a little, a little sherry over and, ha, you know, think it's some kind of constitutional nicety. It's a fundamental thing. I mean, as I said, if you go back to the, the, the claim of right that went into the, the Treaty of Union as our prenup, it is beautiful. It is elegant. It is saying about and it's stating the rights of the human being, it's stating that if you, the people who we lend our sovereignty to, rule us badly, are corrupt, profiteer, which which a lot of them are already doing in London, we can actually tough you out because the people are sovereign. And in London, obviously, and in, in, in England, the principle of the parliament is sovereign. It sounds like a wee kind of historical, constitutional, mm. you know, debate, but it's absolutely fundamental. And if somebody was to take this notion, it's not even a notion, if somebody was to take this absolute firm constitutional law as it relates to Scotland and challenged it, and indeed, within weeks and months, you will find that we're taking it to the United Nations because we're either a colony and there's a, there's a there's a way to 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 deal with that with the United Nations, or we ain't a colony, and there's a way to do that through the uh, the sovereignty of the people. But both ways we're going to win because we've not just got the moral right which we thought we had, we've actually got the constitutional right in law, and nothing that's happened since the 1689 claim of right, the 1707. Um, Treaty of Union has changed that fundamental principle and it's beautiful when you actually look at the wording 300 years ago you think okay it'll be all just kind of anachronistic ancient writing, it was beautiful in the way it was written because it absolutely protected you and I against a king or a queen or somebody usurping us and it is absolutely gorgeous and well, it's well worth a look it's oh, well I, worth absolutely, a look. Well, that's, that's absolutely fascinating I feel but like it's I, been kept from us I feel like I've been it's in been a history lesson us. today this has been <laughs> this has been brilliant listen uh, guys uh, remember to turn your alerts alerts on your favourite podcast apps Spotify, Apple and Google for our next episode follow us at Untribal News follow us on Instagram uh, at Untribal Politics if you've got any questions for myself email me at innis at untribalpolitics.co.uk and thank you very much, our guest today, David. David, is there anything you want to say to my listeners before we go? Uh, well, keep the faith. Uh, judge, don't judge the book by the cover. Do a wee bit of your own uh, homework. Think in positive terms, and next time I might bring my guitar, and we can have a, <laughs> can have a little jam session as well. Looking forward to it, David. Cheers. Thanks a lot. <laughs>